0: Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more. More from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel, to talk about various topics I am interested in learning more about. Now, in a lot of ways, I've had anxiety my whole life, but I did not know it. I became more conscious of it in the last seven to eight years where I realized that that state of constant vigilance is not normal. It also reared its head, especially when I stopped using pornography and other escaping behaviors. One of the people that I've worked with tremendously on it is Coach Mike Rosenfeld, who's a breathing expert, and it's the reason why I wanted to invite him to this conversation. Rabbi Shays Talb is a dear friend, the author of God of Our Understanding, Bridging the Gap Between Jewish Spirituality and Recovery from Addiction, A Wealth of Knowledge, an inspirational gentleman. I'll see you guys on the other side.
1: I think I've had anxiety for a very, very long time, but I didn't know I had anxiety because it was kind of my normal, the baseline. A number of years ago, I had a break-in at work. And For people who think property damage is just property damage, I tell you, for this man, property damage is not just property damage. It made me nuts. It completely made me crazy. And I just obsessed. I was constantly anxious wherever I wherever I was, whether I was playing sports in the gym or everything else that a break-in was happening. And the first thing I did in the morning, the first thing I looked at was my phone to see if there was a call from the alarm company or anything else. Multiple times during the night, and I would wake up and I say, "I just got to drive there, make sure it's okay." When Uber came out, I would send Ubers to my office sometimes two, three times a night just to make sure everything was was okay. Because if you send the cops too often, they stop responding. So. That was my baseline. I got into recovery, started feeling a little bit better, and then I went through a a period which I didn't quite understand. I thought it I thought it meant improvement in recovery, where I was slightly relapsing every three to four weeks. They call it relapsing, I was slipping. And I was like, okay, I'm on this path where I'm definitely not doing what I used to. I cut out the worst of the behaviors. And every three to four weeks I would slip into a little behavior, then I'd go to a couple of meetings, I'd call someone and I'd feel better. And this was up until I got engaged. And when I got engaged, the first time I slipped after I got engaged, I said, "This got to stop. I'm starting a family and it's about three years ago. And uh, I stopped and I committed then, stop. And three or four weeks later, when the urge that normal pattern came to once again, act out, I said, I'm not going to. Even a little slip, I'm not going to rationalize. I'm not going to minimize. I'm doing nothing. I set a new baseline, I found a new sponsor, and I was I was working the program a little bit more seriously, and within about five to six weeks, low anxiety, a little bit more, a little bit more, and then full-on panic attacks. It was just, it was brutal, and now in hindsight, I realize what that three to four-week numbing cycle was. It was start building up a little bit of anxiety, and then I'd turn off the switch. My anti-anxiety pill was not a Xanax, it was pornography. And um, a lot of my anxiety that was coming up was around business. My business was growing incredibly fast, but it also had a lot of uh, structural structural deficiencies. And um, I, it felt out of control. And I didn't quite know how to handle it, and I was burying my head in the sand on certain uh, key issues for a number of reasons. So I set out to find a coach. I was still determined not to act out, and I was going to meetings as often as possible, and I was working with my sponsor. The anxiety was through the roof. I was waking up multiple times in the middle of the night, not worried about an alarm at this point. I racing thoughts, constantly, constantly racing thoughts. So I started interviewing business coaches because I've learned that personal development and business development uh, go super well. So what happened was I, I interviewed a number of coaches and then Pesach came, Passover, and I went to Israel. For Passover, And I don't know if anyone's had this interaction, but when you see an American in a different country, suddenly become best friends. You know, it's a guy who you'd see next door, you barely talk to. So I ran into a guy there who I kind of knew from Miami. We started chatting. And in the middle of the conversation, he just brings up this coach that he worked with through a very difficult time in his personal life, with his business, everything else. And I knew right then, I said, just give me the guy's number. I knew right then I was going to hire him. Because a lot of the business coaches I spoke to, when I sat down with them, they wanted like mountains and mountains of data about the business and the org charts and everything else. I'm like I have enough work at, all right, I don't need more work to, you know, tell me about all your processes and your systems and just write and write and write. And when this guy told me that he was, um, he had, he had struggled a, ma- uh, a major tragedy in his family and he spoke about how he still had to manage his couple hundred employees through that tragedy. And I don't want to be too specific. So I don't, um, you know, in case he doesn't want me to say, but. It was a major tragedy. And when he described the tragedy to me and that someone was able to help him in his business affairs, I said, this is my guy. So I I got his number. And when I got back to um, Miami, I met with Mike and uh, he and I started meeting twice a week and uh, we put in some really good work. And I'll talk a little bit about what I learned from him about anxiety and um, panic. But one of the things which was totally new to me at the time was to listen to the um, listen to it. Like I would made it my enemy. Like, this is the worst thing. My problem is this panic. I got to get rid of it. And I, I, Mike, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember you showing me this and you're like, like this is anxiety. It's like, right. And I'll just keep banging until I listen to what it is. It's trying to say, and those calls will get louder and louder and louder and louder. Right. So it doesn't start as anxiety. It starts as a nice little, you know, today, um, I've, I've learned to rename and reframe a lot of these things that happen. And today I call, like when I start feeling anxiety, I call it my guardian angel. And I say, okay, i got to listen to what my guardian angel is telling me versus having a negative um, association with it. So those were a few of the very key things that I worked with Mike on. And Mike was a, um, uh, Mike's a breathwork therapist amongst other things. And, you know, a lot of people talk about meditation. I find meditation completely ineffective in the middle of a panic attack but breathing, breathing one can do for myself. I'm not saying others may be able to get into a meditative trance during a panic attack, but Mike gave me some really intense breathing. And sometimes I was able to, to get through uh, that. I've learned recently, I'm reading a book now on uh, I think it's, uh, breathing and quieting the mind by a rabbi, Rabbi Dober Pinson. And it was pretty cool to read and find that a lot of these things are rooted in uh Jewish tradition, Jewish spirituality. I don't know if you knew that Mike, but at the time I didn't. And Mike and I did a lot of these, um, breathing work and then identifying slowly, you know, and he taught me also is it took me several years to create my business problems. I wasn't going to fix it in a couple of sessions. And we worked for eighteen to twenty four months consistently and um it changed a lot. The business is in a much better place and also myself and my relationship with anxiety. Whenever I find it creeping back, I or I hear that someone else has anxiety, I'm very I'm moved by it something that I think is one of the most difficult experiences in uh and life is going through anxiety. I'll talk a little bit about what compelled me to uh, reach out to Rav Shays to have him on his panel, besides for the fact that I respect his work and his books. I've spoken a lot about his book, God of Our Understanding, and how it uh, planted a seed in me about the intersection between Jewish spirituality and recovery from addiction. That has been a a path that I've, you know, it's well-worn for me at this point, and finding that intersection and continuing to search that. Um, he and I have also developed a nice relationship. And recently he informed me that he was doing a sheer, a Shahabitachan, I think it's called. I want to talk a little bit about that and some of what Judaism has to talk about trust and faith. You want to talk a little bit about that, that sheer and that series and that, that book? I, I don't want to mix anything up with the class you're, you're doing, but I heard a few of those classes. You were doing it with an in the text class, which is not something I, I see a lot of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was listening to a few of those. And I said, hey, it would be awesome to have your perspective and uh, ancient Judaism and ancient uh, wisdom and this, you know, perspective on uh, anxiety, trust, faith. I think they they link together quite well. You want to talk about that book a little bit?
2: This, uh, the class? Sure. Yeah. So this this is a, uh, a text that's a thousand years old and it's timeless. It could have been written today. Um, it's called Sharhabi Tochen, the gate of trust. What's trust? so uh there's something called faith and there's something called trust and there's actually a, a metaphor from another rabbi not from the author of the gate of trust but uh, another rabbi from uh, many many centuries ago he says that faith and trust are like trees and fruit not every tree has fruit but every fruit that you see grew from a tree So not everyone who has faith has trust in God, but anyone who has trust in God has faith. What does that mean? Faith can be very abstract. Yeah, I believe in God, but what does it have to do with my life? What does it have to do with when I'm feeling anxiety? What does it have to do when I have to make choices? What I have to, you know, when I have to make decisions. Nothing. You know, it's just an abstract idea. It's dogma. That's faith. Trust is where I can actually lean on that relationship in my day-to-day life. And that's what the book's all about. It's about really taking that that abstract notion of, of belief that's, you know, maybe very, very spiritual and therefore very ethereal and, and it, it, internalizing it, integrating it so it becomes visceral. Become We feel it in our gut.
1: Make it real trust. I guess like the third step, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God
2: as we understand right. God. That it's right. not it's, just an well, abstract concept of right. God. Well, step, step two is came to believe. That's a, that's a great right. juxtaposition. Step two is came to believe. Came to believe is do you believe it's possible? Yeah, I believe in theory it's possible. Step three is now put your money where your mouth is. Can you give it over? Right.
1: Mike, when I approached you, I remember the first time we met in uh, Surfside in a <laughs> hotel there. So did you notice how much um, angst I was in around that? And is that common for people you work with?
3: I did. I noticed when you walked in, um, you walked in with your shoulders up and your body language was very stiff. And in the beginning, you seemed a little bit tight, Um, but not to the degree where I thought you were actually suffering from anxiety. Um, I mean, you're a big guy and and you're in shape. And, you know, so I, I, it's not like I automatically looked at you and said, he has anxiety. And I think that's one of the things Like a lot of people are suffering from anxiety and the world thinks that they're living normally, but inside there's a war taking place. So, no, I, I could not tell the to the, to the degree of which um, you're experiencing anxiety, but having done some um, pre-work before we met, um, assessments and things like that, I kind of remember you had written that. in, in Right.
1: The way I described what you taught me about anxiety, to listen to it and to befriend it and to recognize it as something that gets louder and louder until it's listened to, is that... Accurate. Do you have more to say about anxiety. How would you define anxiety? last question. Well,
3: I'll take a step back first. First, it's really cool to to be doing this with you and Rabbi Taub for a couple. Of, one, Rabbi Taub and I met in 1996, 1997, I believe. Uh, we went to yeshiva together in uh, Hadar Torah in Crown Heights, and my stint there wasn't too long, um, but, but I remember you, you learned everything you need to know very quickly. I'll tell you what i learned, and it applies to this, and it stuck with me, and it's probably the number one reason why I went a different path. Um, I remember speaking to to a rabbi, and I wanted to know, when we said the Shema, what did Yisrael mean? And he gave me three answers. He was one, it means the Jewish people to some. Two, it means the land of Israel. But the third, he said, and the one that resonated most powerfully with me, is when we say Israel. We're recognizing that God is infinite, all place, all space, and all time. And we have this part of our brain, um, which now I know is the front cerebral cortex, or the analytical mind, that wrestles and judges and analyzes. So sometimes we miss out on seeing God. And what he said to me is, if you can see God in everything and everyone, God will speak to you through everything and everyone. So in that mindset, from what I learned there, If God is everywhere, then where is God not? So if God is in anxiety because God is everywhere and God is good, then what is the point of the anxiety? It must be something. It must be some sort of gift unless I'm resisting it. And having gone through years and years of anxiety myself, driving in the car, like wishing and hoping that when I go into this room that it just doesn't start hitting me and taking over, having had that type of experience, and resisted it for so long and being plagued by it because of my resisting it I wanted to give that methodology that philosophy a chance so I learned to breathe and I learned to meditate and I learned to sit with my anxiety first and in doing so I realized that I had created a a what's the best word a image of who I am a personality of who I am and I did not believe in myself, and because I did not believe in myself, I saw the world through someone who doesn't believe in himself, but was projecting himself in a really powerful way. So everything in front of me was like a huge freaking mountain that I didn't think I can climb. So when I went to sitting with myself, and I met with tons of coaches and and mentors, when I went and sat with myself, I just remember hearing that rabbi's words, and I went inside and I'm like, okay, God, what is it that you want me to see? What is this message that anxiety is giving? So in that spirit, yeah, I do believe that anxiety is is not the enemy. It's not the enemy at all. In fact, it's a gift. And I like that you're actually, what are you calling it? You're, you're guiding, guiding an angel? Guarding an angel. Yeah. yeah I, I think that um, we try to avoid the anxiety and in doing so, we push it away. And we push it away. It's kind of like, um, pushing a beach ball underneath the water. At some point, it's going to come up and hit us in the face. At some point, the anxiety is going to hit us in the face. So the theory is that anxiety and fear are not things that we want to inf- to avoid. They're not the enemy. And seeing them creates this internal battle. And that internal battle is the anxiety. So if I were to say in short, anxiety is a messenger. it's It's not the enemy. And a messenger is there to give you a message. So many people are trying to push the messenger away as opposed to listen to it. And when we resist it or we have fear of it or we fight it or we try to mask it, we distort the message that it's giving to us. And just like any messenger, once we actually listen to what it's saying and we honor it and realize that it's coming from a higher place, what tends to happen is the messenger has no purpose of being there anymore and the anxiety the messenger begins to fade away. So it's being one
1: with it. How do you differentiate? And or Chase, is there a Hebrew word? Is there a Jewish word for, for anxiety? How do we differentiate between fear and anxiety? So I'm talking about anxiety. I'm not talking about a concern. I'm talking about that type of feeling where half the body feels numb and it's
2: difficult to breathe, like mm-hmm. where it gets to that mm-hmm. point of very intense mm-hmm. anxiety. By the way, before before I answer you, it, it's interesting what you're saying right now um, about the angel and uh, I just wanted to let you know how how aligned that is with Jewish teachings. Um, can I can I just tell you a little bit about that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. It's, it's surprising. I mean, it's it's not. I shouldn't be surprised, but in uh, so I'll, I'll I'll use the Hebrew and I'll use the English as well. In in the Torah portion that we we call Vayetze which uh, is, the, is Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 here, according to my uh, Google search. So it says, And uh, Jacob left Be'er and he went to a place called Choron. And then uh, it says, I'm sorry, next not that part, portion, but the portion after that one. Yishlach Yankiv. That's a good Malachi. one anyway. <laughs> right. That's a good one. The very next part. The very next parasha. But Yishlach Yankiv Malachim. Jacob sent angels. So um, I remember I, there's a, there was a talk from the Lubavitcher Rebbe where he says, you know, everything in Torah has to be a practical lesson. Everything has to be. Because Torah means lesson. The word Torah means instruction. So everything in Torah has to be a practical instruction. So, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe asked, what's the practical instruction from Jacob sent angels ahead of him? He had to go meet with, with his brother Esau. There was a whole showdown. Before he went, he sent angels ahead of him. Like, how is that an instruction to me? I, I don't have angels to send. How, how am I supposed to learn from that? So the Rebbe says, actually, in Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed, he says that mental energy and emotional energy are angels. And that every time that we um, connect with a situation or our imagination of a situation, and we create, either we attach ourselves mentally, well, it's usually both. We attach ourselves mentally and emotionally to something. Like, let's say you're physically in one place, but you're projecting yourself to a situation already that you haven't yet come to. And you're having an emotional reaction to it. That is actually like, Literally sending forth angels. And they okay. are reporting to you. They're doing reconnaissance <laughs> and they're reporting back to you according to the way that you sent them. So therefore, just like Jacob, our forefather, sent angels, you can also send angels. Not only you can, you're doing it anyway. You are sending angels. So now take control over it and do it with do it deliberately. Send them the right way so they
3: come back to you the right way. So this is totally aligned with Jewish teaching. And what's really cool about it is it's also the Jewish teaching and the quantum physics, if you will, are pretty much saying the same thing also. Quantum physics says that everything is energy. In Judaism, we say God is infinite. But if everything is energy and we're also made of energy, essentially, there's different vibratory states that we can be in. One vibratory state we can be in is the state of certainty. Another one, which is a very high, powerful place to be. And another one is a state of doubt and judgment. Whatever energy we're in is what we're creating in our world. They call that the law of attraction, right? If you look at an atom, an atom has a left wing, a right wing, and a center column. The angels, I believe, kabbalistically are said to have a left wing, a right wing, and a center column also. So essentially what I'm learning is that for thousands and thousands of years, Judaism has been saying that the quality of our thoughts are attracting things into our life. We're actually putting angels to work. And the quantum physics is actually saying the same exact thing. And so when we're having anxiety, if we're doubting or we're in a place of judgment, what we're doing is we're actually missing the mark on our ability to learn and receive something extremely powerful. that's going to move us forward in the most beautiful way. But I want to say something before I I, I go further on that. Um, a lot of what we'll talk about, I believe tonight is going to be theory and maybe some application, but having been through anxiety for many years, myself, and coached hundreds and hundreds of, if not even more people through anxiety, I I want to make sure that, um, I acknowledge and honor those who are feeling anxiety or depression or any emotional pain, because I know that it's hard. It's really hard. It's debilitating. It's isolating. It's crippling. And it's really freaking scary. So hearing like all these like esoteric and even scientific you know formulas to help with it can be extremely scary. And at some point we may be just like it's just too much. But one thing I want to say, and I'll say this certainly about you, Ellie, your mindset in working with anxiety is going to determine the outcomes that you get. So if you go into this with a scarcity or doubtful mindset you're really closing yourself off to the possibility of what can happen for you. But if you walk into this conversation, because this conversation is where we are right now. And if you walk into this conversation saying to yourself, you know what? I do believe everything is possible. And I do believe, and, I, and, and I've been learning about in Muna and Bithuan and Faith. And like, I, I feel really cool being able to say those words because I think it's really important because if you go in there with that trust and that faith, what happens is there's a part of the brain, the front cerebral cortex, that we push offline, and then we begin to open ourselves up to the possibility. Science is calling this flow state. And I'm gonna talk definitely a lot more about that because like that is my forte these days, like accessing flow state. But essentially, what happens when we have anxiety? Our brain is, and our minds are so congested, so overwhelmed. There's so much thoughts going on. And those thoughts are producing energy and motion, which is emotion. And with those thoughts and fear-based worry thoughts, that emotion is producing cortisol and adrenaline. So essentially what we're doing is we're having all of us worry. We're shrinking up or tightening up like this. It's causing our breathing to become short and shallow, which means we're holding in lots of toxins. And essentially we're starting to feel bad. And when we start to feel bad, it affects the way we think. And when we think bad, we feel bad. So we actually put ourselves in this negative cycle. We can break that cycle, but we have to be open to it.
1: Mike, one of the things I wanted to um, talk about, because we had said that, Um, you know, listening to the anxieties. I want to give a practical example of something that I learned with you. So for me, a lot of my anxiety was around business, right? So it was okay, something's gonna go wrong, I'm gonna lose my business, I'm gonna lose my money, I'm gonna be homeless, or whatever, right? And I go through this um catastrophic thinking, worst case scenario, this is where this is going. But when I when I broke it down, I found that anxiety typically came in one of two places. Either it was an unprocessed trauma that was coming back. And now I look at that as, okay, this is a trauma that I need to go and, and, and process. So for example, um, the, I gave earlier the example of being broken into, I hadn't processed that completely. And eventually I got to the point where I said about it and I just said it because saying is not enough. I, like that state, I think it's for this, they call it state of dots, right? Like to get to that place of a little bit of a higher consciousness. So and then it it gets to a place where it's integrated. It's not just a belief. I heard Rabbi Shay's talk one time. He says, you know, it's like if someone tells you there's a cockroach on a salad, and like that feeling you have about that salad now, that's I think you call that dots, right? Like now
2: that that's integrated thought. You're not eating that salad anymore. You heard a cockroach. I said, uh, yeah. I said it's impossible to let that information remain purely academic abstract. because <laughs>
3: right.
2: it's going to inform your choices. You're not going to want that salad. Right.
1: <laughs> So one of the ways I um, got through the break-in was I was an unprocessed trauma was realized, hey, it was letting me know that I need to protect myself better. And nothing that bad happened. like wh- They had broken in and stole mostly boxes, honestly, free boxes that UPS gives to our company. So when I was able to get past this idea of, hey, people are after me at all hours of the night, and I can never lay still, because that was the thought, is I'm sitting here trying to work during the day to make money, and there are all these forces against me trying to destroy it so I can't be vigilant enough I can't be alert enough I always need to be awake and I always need to be cognizant of those outside forces instead over time I reframed it when I sat with it and said hey this was actually a beautiful gift and this guy was letting me know what do they call it um, companies will hire hackers to try to penetrate their system so it's like a penetration test so it's uh, ethical hackers who come in and say hey this is a vulnerability test they call it and he say okay here we've We've just delivered a vulnerability test on a platter for you. And I was like, hey, this was a pretty inexpensive vulnerability test for me. And that was, but truly believing that it truly got to that point. So one I found is unprocessed trauma. And the second, um, and I'd be curious for Chase to to hear you, from you on this, if there's some sort of um, Jewish link to it, is a, a component of an identity. I'm tying myself too closely to an identity. So there was an identity that I was linking so strongly to a possibility of me not having money in the sense that I wouldn't recognize myself. I couldn't see myself in the mirror as someone who didn't have that. So I was so consumed by I didn't have money. Money had me. And what it was telling me was not this constant fear that I need to work with of making sure I'm storing up as much money as possible and I can't spend and I much save. But it's I, I got to strip my identity and be able to look at myself, who am I without that? And if I'm always tied to that, then of course I'm going to be afraid of losing it. So I've and now I look at it, anxiety as very closely related to shame or identity, and the shame of losing identity. And I'll give one example quickly of someone else. Um, he told me every time he gets in the car, he's afraid of getting into an accident. So I said, what is the actual fear? When you get into an accident, what's going to happen? And he says, what you, It's like terrible. Like he couldn't even get past the thought. And so, like, so just break it down. Walk me through. You're going to get into it. You're driving out of here. Where, which street corner are you going to hit them? I was like, right as I'm turning onto the I-95, the highway, someone's going to hit me. I'm like, are you going to get hurt? Like in that image that you have in your brain and you get hurt? He says, no. He says, no, I don't think I'm going to get hurt. So I said, so what's going to happen? He says, oh, my car is going to have problems. And the next day I'm going to have to fill out paperwork for the insurance company. I'm not going to know how to do it. And he started going to this whole thing about paperwork. And what I realized was that he has this fear of incompetence. And the, the, the accident is really about him getting anxiety is really about being in a state where he's forced to show that I know how to handle this situation. And he thinks he's going to be exposed for being incompetent. And that's more of an identity thing. But this was a very real anxiety. Every time he got into a car, that was the fear. And that's something I learned from you, Mike Chase, anything I'm saying connects with, I'm hoping you can say like, yeah, there's a medras. Jacob said to, you know,
2: this guy, <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting. You know, there's different types of anxiety, but what, what you're talking about, the, the fear of the loss of identity, the, the identity or being exposed for the lack of the identity that we, that we want to have. Um, that's a very deep level of anxiety. That's a very deep level. Um, because basically what you're saying is, you know, I'm not afraid there's going to be something wrong with what I'm doing. I'm afraid that there's something wrong with who I am. Right. Exactly what I'm saying. Right. I am not enough. I'm deficient. Um, I'm going to be exposed. I'm going to be made vulnerable. My weaknesses are going to be called on. I'm going to have to do things that I'm incapable of doing, and I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be shown as 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 weak, or I'm gonna be forced to gonna be forced to do things that are that are uh, you know shamefully difficult for me. One way you know, I thought of it is yeah. I have no
1: right to exist.
2: I don't know if that. Yeah, well, that that's that's kind of the direction I was going, which is you're talking about shame, which is essentially. Yeah, I have no right to exist. It it's I'm sorry for taking up space. Now if you want to go deeper, the truth is, yeah, actually, why do you take up space? There's something actually authentic about that that discomfort. If God is everything, then how can you be a something? I mean, a something other than God. Right. So unless you're one with the everything, yeah, why are you taking up space? So there's a false self, which is an adaptation, which is a, a personality that we developed in order to make us feel safer in the world. Usually we developed it when we were very, very young, and we don't even know that we did it, and we don't even remember doing it. But it's a false self that gives us an answer to what am I doing here, or why am I allowed to be here, or how am I going to, prevent someone from asking me, hey, what are you doing here? Or, or, or how am I going to have an answer, right? So if I'm smart enough or if I'm, 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 I'm interesting enough or I'm good looking enough or I'm funny enough or whatever it is that I define myself as this, this identity that I give myself that gives me an excuse to be here, right? And, of course, that adaptation, you know, I said we usually do that when we're kids. It's the best attempt that a kid has at answering the question, why am I here and why do I get to be here and why do I belong here? But ultimately it doesn't work for us because that's not the true answer to the question, what are you doing here? The true answer to the question, what are you doing here is God put me here. And I don't have to apologize for being in God's world because God is the one who put me in his world. And I'm not something separate from God. I'm an extension of God. So when you're talking about the deep, deep anxiety, which is shame that I am not enough, really it's another way of saying that I I am rightfully uncomfortable with the false self that I constructed to excuse my existence as an entity separate from God. And, and it's then never the work
1: happen. and then the work needed to release oneself from that anxiety or, or free oneself from the the prison of that anxiety is to abandon the false self, to get rid of the false
2: self. Right, which is the scariest thing in the world because those are the adaptations. Those are the tools that I developed to protect me from everything that scares me. Right. So if right. I decided so I'm safe because I know how to make money, and that's what's going to make me safe, and that's what gives me a right to be in this world. And then let's say I don't do it, or I can't do it, or someone takes it from me. Now I'm naked. What do I have? Nothing. Right. The,
1: um, you've heard this, this line, the price of security is insecurity. Have you heard that line?
2: No, I haven't. But that's
1: <laughs> right. Is it <that> sometimes,
2: <sighs> right,
1: sometimes that that angst the anxiety itself uh, does something as well. And I, I found that is sometimes releasing what it's it's not the false self is not only the ability to make money or the ability or being competent or being learned, or whatever it is, the false self can also be the anxiety itself. Meaning, an attachment to the insecurity as a
0: motivator.
3: That's right. Or it's feeling alive. Yeah. And the false self actually produces an adrenaline rush along with cortisol that becomes addictive. So essentially, we become addicted to our anxiety. We really do. And in the spirit of what you were saying, Rabbi Top, from, from the time we're born to the time we turn five in America, On average, we've been told no or don't do that over 5,000 times. So prior to that, you're free. You burp when you need to, you cry when you need to, you express yourself how you have to, and then you get cultivated into a person. And you begin to develop these belief systems based on how you're socialized. And I know for myself, I developed a belief system about myself that a couple of them, one of them was that I'm not intelligent. So essentially the way a belief system works is it becomes your identity. Your belief system becomes your subconscious thoughts and your subconscious thoughts are what control your conscious thoughts. And the way it works is there's billions of bits of information that are happening all the time. And out of all that information that's going on around us, we're only able to take in a very small percent of it. And what we take in is always going to support whatever it is we believe about ourselves, right? So if I don't believe I'm smart and I'm sitting here talking and you're nodding your head, I may see you nodding your head, but I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking he's only nodding his head because he feels bad for me. So I'm constantly reinforcing that belief system. And one of the cool things about science now is it's saying that our mind, our analytical mind is living in the past and living in the future. And our past experiences are what's shaping our current reality, so our past experiences are the lenses to which we see our current reality and forecast our future. So if I have an identity that I'm not smart and I'm seeing the world through those lenses over and over again, essentially what's happening when I'm going to look into my future, I have a lot of doubt, I have a lot of judgment. I have a lot of a lot of negative emotions. But if we go back to that point of hearing those emotions as a gift, we realize that life is not up and down. Life is up or down. Life is up and down. And when we're in that down, most of us get very doubtful, very judgmental, very scared. This is where the anxiety is. And because we become very doubtful and judgmental and scared, we start to stress about our anxiety. And in doing so, we're actually creating more anxiety. So what we want to do is we want to have certainty. Certainty that when we're down here, there's a gift. It's teaching us something. Maybe we're not living in alignment with something. Maybe we're still functioning from, a, from an old identity. So the way I like to look at that is If you would evaluate your life right now, based on these three things, your confidence in yourself, what you believe the world is like. In other words, do you believe the world is a doggy dog world and it's kill or be killed? Or do you believe it's a world of abundance and there's millions of infinite possibilities? And how do you think people perceive you? Those three things, how you see. Can you repeat
1: those three things, Mike?
3: One is how you see yourself. Yeah. Your confidence level. Two is how you see the world. Is it a world of opportunity or a doggy dog world where everyone is out to get you? And three, how do you think people perceive you? You take those three things, put them together, and you come up with the average of those three things. And on a scale of one through 10, if you're at a 10, your identity is really powerful. You are your actualized self. But if you're at a one, you're in this place of complete doubt. And wherever you are, it's important to say, okay, I'm here. Maybe I'm at a four. And I'm experiencing the world through the four. And when I'm down here, I'm feeling that anxiety because my my guardian angel is trying to remind me that I'm not a four at all. It's trying to remind me that this feeling, remember we talked about the tap? Yeah. It's coming because I'm not being myself and I'm not seeing the world through my highest self and it's tapping and it's tapping and it's tapping until we're just over overwhelmed with it. But if we could take a step back and really just breathe for a moment and tune in, and there's a lot of exercises that we can do to actually do this, to really tune in. What happens is we take that part of our mind offline, that judgmental shame part of our mind offline that actually limits our performance. It has its use in this world, but not here. And we begin to open ourselves up to that possibility. And in opening up to that possibility, we begin to receive these beautiful messages that really give us direction. So we begin to look forward to those downs as like, okay, I'm down because like there's a huge up on its way if only i slow down tune in listen and then take that message that i was given and go forward and that takes a muna and a That <laughs> takes faith and trust
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know, one of the one of the lines i love that uh i hear in recovery a lot is pain is pain is required but suffering is optional and mm-hmm. i find that that you know with with anxiety it is painful this feeling but the idea that it shouldn't be there makes it suffering makes it doubly painful whereas um now i mean I, I connect anxiety and also triggers right if i'm triggered if i'm thinking about watching porn right which still happens even though it's been several years since i did um since i watched porn i still when it used to be when they came when they came to me right a trigger or even anxiety so I was like, okay, I got to get rid of this. I got to push this out. And it was almost this quality of why do I have this? Why do I have this this trigger? Why like why do I drive by this place and suddenly I'm thinking about it? Why do I sign into my computer and my hand just want to, you know, they're nearly like typing the web address of some site that I don't want to go to? Like why is that happening? And now it's like okay, it's alerting me to something. There's obviously something off if over the course of two months I didn't want to do it and suddenly I'm sitting down today. And I do. So instead of associating that pain, which is it's very uncomfortable wanting to do something and not fulfilling the wants, but instead of that, associating that pain with a negative feeling, it's like, no, this is something here to communicate to me in, in a powerful way. Or Chase, is that what you meant by, by angels, that angels in the sense that it's coming to commute the emotion, the attachment to some future event is actually coming to communicate something like an angel would. That's the way it's talking to us, the angel. It's your angel. Why doesn't the angel ever sing?
2: They do. <laughs> they can. They absolutely can. There are different kinds of energies based on totally based on what we put out. They're, they're not coming from someplace else. They're coming from ourselves. They're coming back to us. Our angels are coming back to us. It's all, it's, it's all about the energy that we put out. That's, that's what we get back.
1: I mean, when you say they, they do, when you say they do sing, I mean, that's, I, I feel like most of my lessons have come pretty, pretty hard. I mean, yeah, there's been some, I mean, some gentle, you know, I'm here, but it's, it's often pain that teaches me. Sure. When you, when you say the angels, the singing angels, maybe they come to
2: you. Well, you've, you've experienced situations of, uh, where you have a profound sense of well-being. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or even, or even something that I enjoyed, right? I did something, and it's like, hey, I enjoyed that afterwards.
2: And and, and by the way, I just want to make sure, not that it was exciting, but it was fulfilling in a sort of settling way. Because excitement, yeah. I different- would even
1: include yeah, the first webinar that I did first in the series. I didn't know that it would continue, but we were on that one, and afterwards, I said, hey, that felt fulfilling in some way i don't quite have to put my finger on it or describe it or there, mm-hmm. there's no my bank account hasn't gone up because of it but it just it felt fulfilled and i did a second and a third mm-hmm. and so on so you
2: made a feeling like that so yeah so that feeling of fulfillment it's not it's a an physical angel. object it's what? an angel it's, 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 it's energy and an angel isn't some guy with the, like you know with a white robe and you know feather wings and a little halo on his head angel is a is an energy. So that was your angel. Yeah. Well, there are different angels. There are there are. there's mental energy and there's emotional energy. Emotional energy is born from mental energy. So what what by the time we get a feeling, by the time our emotional angels are coming back to us, it's because we've been sending out um mental energy already. Okay. Thoughts create. Right,
1: so that's true. So that was a um that was an example of a a negative thought on my part thinking that like ignoring the good feelings as angels and just considering the bad feelings angels. But all of them are. One, communicating, hey, this was something that, like Mike said, in alignment, I'm at a 10. And another, that's, hey, you're not in alignment. You're thinking about going to porn or you're feeling some anxiety. Listen to this angel. Not listen in the sense of do what it's saying. Listen in the mm-hmm. sense of it's here to communicate something that
0: you need so, to know.
2: What I Remember I was saying before, like when I was telling you originally the, the, this teaching from some of the That wasn't saying you can send out angels. That was saying you're doing it anyway. You're sending out angels anyway. Right. So the choice isn't whether to send angels or not send angels. Choice is what kind of messengers do you want to send? See, in the story, he's sending out these messengers. They're scouts. They do reconnaissance. They come back. They report back to him. So the kind of angels that report back to you are precisely the (laughs) angels that you send out. Whatever kind of angels you send are the angels that are gonna return to you and tell you how to feel about whatever situation you're heading toward. So we are producing angels constantly. And the question is, if we are going to start doing it deliberately, mindfully, like actually sit down and stop and say, hold on a second. There's no way that I'm not gonna have a feeling About This situation, there's going to be some feeling. So what I like to have some choice in what kind of feelings I'm going to end up having But
1: this thought, right? If I'm sending out angels and they're doing reconnaissance, right? This can be, I I can imagine getting stuck in a pretty bad loop. It's an anxiety producing thought, right? So if I'm thinking, okay, something is going to something bad is going to happen tomorrow. Okay, I'm going to, I don't know, lose something that's important to me. And that's the thought that's going on. And then I interpret that as here an angel is coming to me telling me they did reconnaissance. I'm going to lose it tomorrow. This my angel. Tell me I'm going to lose it. And then I can just spin on that thought for quite a long time. So how do I separate between like, how do I know what the angel is actually trying to communicate?
3: It's well, it's your view of, of the angel. Is your angel good? Or here's the way I like to look at it. Whatever the thought is, let's just call the thought neutral, Right. So actually, let's call it fear, which I believe is neutral. So let's say you have a fear of something, right? If you obsess over that fear, you go down this downward spiral of worry, right? But if you see that that fear... And worry you're saying is not neutral. negative, right. Worry is where the anxiety comes from, right? Fear and worry are not the same. Worry is obsessing over a fear. A fear is neutral. Fear is simply indicating or pointing to what's important. So if you have a fear around money, you can obsess and worry about money and create a lot of anxiety around it. But if you look at fear as it's neutral and it's actually indicating what's important, now it's become good, you realize that having money is important. So what you do with that fear, what you do with that angel is up to you. So the way I like to look at it is you have the fear, and the first thing you want to do. Is you want to smile when you have the fear. Because when you smile, you're realizing that your angel's speaking to you. And physiologically, you're releasing dopamine and serotonin. This is healthy because when you begin to release these endorphins, the body begins to relax, your breathing begins to slow down, you send a message to your nervous system that everything is going to be okay. Once you smile and thank the fear for being there, you say, okay, what are you pointing to? Fine, it's money or it's health, or it's a relationship. And the next step is you get clear of what success looks like in that relationship or with the money. So one step, one is to thank the fear. Two is to see what's important and get clear of what success looks like there. Three is to connect to why it's important to you. And it's really, it's important to connect to the why, because that's what's going to motivate you. And then four, it's very simple. Get clear of one or two steps you can take to move in that direction. And five, now you have all of this emotion that you're now beginning to channel towards what it is that's good for you rather than worrying about what's bad for you. And you take immediate action. And if you begin to see your fears as a gift and you know if you're beginning to worry about something, you look at the opposite of it. So what's the opposite of the worry? Because that's what you really want. And then a specific action that could be taken. You've got to take the action right then and there because it's like standing on the edge of a diving board and just like afraid to go forward. I heard a cool story about when the Jews left Egypt and they were face-to-face. I don't get to like give these stories often. (laughs) to people who I think already know them perhaps. But I remember hearing when this story is when the Jews were at the ocean being chased by the Egyptians there were four questions that they were considering or four possibilities that they were considering. One was to just commit suicide, but that's not a Jewish thought. So that really wasn't a real consideration. The next was to fight the Egyptians, but that was like the strongest army of the world. They're like, so that is like suicide. Three was to sit there and go back to Egypt and become slaves again. And the fourth was to pray. And then a voice came And I don't know all the details, so (laughs) forgive me here. But basically the voice was, stop praying, go forward. And it was the voice of God. And it wasn't until, I don't know who the person who walked in the ocean was, I don't think it was Moses, but it wasn't until that person got in nose deep that the ocean began to open. And if I'm saying it correctly, in order for them to go forward to the point where they're about to drown, it required a mona and remind It required massive trust and massive faith. The same thing. When you have a big worry, there's a reason that worry is there. It's because you've created an identity for yourself over the course of your life that keeps that keeps getting reinforced and reinforced by your experiences. But rather than shriveling up, what we want to do is we want to get clear of what it's pointing to, what's important why it's important, the steps you can take to get there. And then you have to learn how to tap into your most powerful identity. And that's some of the work that we did. And it's a rewiring of the subconscious. It's a rewiring. It's the be to become of it all. It's training yourself to know that you already are that person. But somewhere in your life, you've forgotten how great you were. But God did not make you weak. You just started to believe that about yourself. And you must take that amuna and bitukon. You must take that faith and trust and go forward and in doing so your ocean opens your world begins to open so this
1: um conversation wouldn't be complete without touching a little bit uh, i do want to get to people's questions but just on medication i'll tell you my own experience um with it having been in uh therapy in that world for about 11 or 12 years it was recommended to me multiple times to take medication for one reason or another, whether it was for depression or anxiety or curb sexual desire, whatever else, right. That these medications, and each time it just, it scared me like right out of my pants. And I was like, what else can I do besides that? I don't know why. I think I had this association with it. Not that the medication was so terrible, just that it would be very difficult to get off of it. Um, and if, if I went there, so I was okay, just give me another option other than medication and sometimes another option meant breathing for an hour and a half with mike which looks a little funny but doesn't have massive withdrawal afterwards so, cool
0: now, experience.
1: so that was mine obviously i i know other people who've used medication for short periods of time and 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 uh, and it's helped them do either of you have any opinion on it because i'm sure people listening to it that's some of that's often the common uh, suggestion is like okay you're having anxiety take a panic
3: um, I mean, I do have an opinion of it. Um, I think when we look at anxiety, there's two there's two components to it. There's the root or the cause of the anxiety, and then there's the symptom of the anxiety. Um, medication can help you with the symptom of the anxiety, and, but it will not help with the root, the cause of the anxiety. However... I'm not anti-anxiety or medication because if you need the medication in order to get yourself to a position of stability in order to begin working on the cause of the problem, it has its function, but it's not going to cure, it's not going to cure it. It's just going to allow you to be in a space of not suffering from the anxiety while you're working on it. With that said, um, I generally try to sway my clients away from using the medication when we're doing our work um, because it also distorts the response to some of the work that we're actually doing. Um, But I do think that through breath work and reframing work, you can alleviate the anxiety much faster than if you... I mean, many people are on Prozac or anxiety pills for 10, 15 years, and um, you can get through this much quicker than that. Right.
1: Makes me think of uh, also with addiction, that addiction is not the often the assumption is that addiction is the problem, right? You know, and Chase, in your book, you talk about that. Addiction is not the problem. It's the solution to something. So not obviously anxiety might not be the solution to it, or maybe it is the solution, listening to it. But it's that that same concept that oftentimes we mistake the the problem for the actual problem. Chase, any thoughts from your side on uh, medication? I know you counsel a lot of people individually. They reach out to you for advice just on this.
2: I mean, I, I try to steer very clear from, uh, you know, medication is a, is a medical issue and uh, I try to not mix in where, you know, I'm not qualified to. But, you know, what Mike says is, is, is very true. And I, I don't think any psychiatrist or physician would disagree that um, medication is for treating symptoms, So the, which is why anyone who's on medication is also going to have some type of therapy. So I think that's, that's a safe statement to make what Mike just said. I mean, it's, you know, it's fairly apparent and obvious.
1: That's everyone. I mean, a lot of doctors, uh, throw something, you know, throw medication as that's, that's what it is. You got a problem with anxiety. I mean, the way it was presented to me with the first time is like, Oh yeah, you got an anxiety disorder. So you need this medication to offset it. This, this concept and Mike, you know, someone asked asked this question and I don't think this is what you meant. Um, is that everything happens for the best, right? Someone said it's like the trust that the sea will split. It'll all be good regardless of how, like, don't worry, this will be good. I mean, sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes pain pain comes our way. So,
3: I think that um, if everyone has a pen and paper, this might be cool to write down. I think that just like for any great basketball player, and if everybody watched the whole thing on Michael Jordan recently, um, he's probably the best of all time for him to have been the best it wasn't skill that he needed most or focus that he needed most or mental strength the first thing he needed was to know the rules of the game and there's rules to this game too and the first rule and i and this is just like a framework that i use it's not like written in any medical journey journal or anything like that but rule number one and i'm going to answer that question this way rule number one is the rule of one and basically that says that If you're coming from a religious perspective, God is everywhere. If you're coming from a scientific perspective, energy is everywhere, which means we are connected to everything. We are not separate, just like Rabbi Tog was saying earlier. Everything is one. We have a part of our brain that has begun to make us feel separate than everything else. And I actually call that part of our brain, it's the front cerebral cortex. I call that the tree of good and evil. Um, That's where I believe that... In in the Garden of Eden, it was complete oneness, but God is love and an expression of love is to share. And in order for something to be shared, there needs to be someone to receive. And God wanted to share his love with us and for us to receive it. So the the Garden of Treenival, that tree, became the front cerebral cortex, which created the duality. But we must know that everything is one. And if everything is one, that means that we are connected to our worst failure as well to our greatest success. Basically, what that means is anything is possible. Rule number one is the rule of one. Rule number two is that we are always creating. Whether we do something intentionally or unintentionally, we're constantly creating. Just like Rabbi Tal was saying a little bit earlier, the angels are always at work. Whether we like them to be at work or we don't want them to be at work, they're always at work. And we take ownership for everything that's being created. Rule number three is what is referred to as the law of attraction, which basically says that whatever vibration we're in, that's what we're creating. So if we're in a very high vibration of love and certainty, we're creating very powerfully th- powerful things. And we feel really good up here. But if we're in that place of fear and doubt, we're creating scattered and negatively. And that's why when we're down, we wanna have certainty. We always wanna be in certainty, even when we're down, that God is giving us a message that there's something that we need to see in order to become who we're meant to be. So we look at those down periods as a gift. But now that we're talking about the law of attraction and that we are constantly creating based on whatever energy we're in, just imagine you're Michael Jordan and you want to win that game. So you get yourself into this space of certainty. I'm winning. I'm winning. I'm winning. So this is my direct answer to um, the question of, it seems like setting my mind to trusting a particular outcome may be an obstacle to attaining such trust. Here's the thing you want to be able to see that outcome as if it's happening. But what happens is when you see that outcome as if it's happening, you also, like if I want to win and I'm seeing myself winning, I also have a counter thought of, I hope I don't lose. So both of those thoughts are prevalent. Whatever one is louder is the angels you're creating, right? If you're coming from that, I don't want to lose, that's a fear, scarcity-based thought, and you are creating those angels. But if you're coming from that place of certainty, I am winning, the only way to actually be in that space of certainty that I'm winning is simple. You must be okay with losing. Because Michael Jordan would never take that shot unless he was willing to miss it. You must be willing to miss the shot in order to take it. Now, why would you be willing to miss the shot? Because you have certainty that there's a lesson there in that failure. So it's not really failure, it's feedback. So if you give yourself permission to go forward, no matter what, it's never win or lose. It's always win or learn. And when you're in that space, what happens is you take that analytical mind offline and there's not so much chatter and you begin to open up to, again, what, what is flow state. And you begin to tap into a part of yourself where you're free. I, th- I think, Mike, that's... Uh was something new about the work we,
1: we did together, new for me, was that the persistent positivity, right, of being able to, for any situation, okay, what's there? What's the positive? What's the positive? What's the positive? Ripshase, in, in, um, one of the classes you gave on Shar you spoke about the, the link, um, between, they're brief, so you don't always flesh out, the, um, some of the thoughts as much as I would like, but it's good, it's good, because there's like 30 minute classes. We get through it you spoke about the link between uh, the hebrew word which i think is effort right or input and trust and how that works can you can you flesh that out a little bit more here how basically effort input and output or effort and trusting the outcome and how that works and from a yeah. jewish perspective
2: yeah so there's false dichotomy that either you're in control or God is in control. And therefore, if you're trusting in God, then God is it all and you do nothing, right? That's the false dichotomy of, you know, the person of faith who doesn't take any act, ac- doesn't take action. And then, you know, or or, or conversely the exact that that, you know, the person who is uh, busy and gets things done, he must not be, uh, you know, God conscious because he's just, you know, doing it himself. And the truth is that they're two totally separate things. You have to understand the mechanics of how they're functioning. The effort that we do is is supposed to be a, a I'll put it this way, it's an alibi. It's an alibi for God. Everything is manna. Everything is bread from heaven. Everything. Everything's a miracle.
3: Is it breath from heaven?
2: It's all bread, bread, from yeah, bread like the manna.
3: Bread, 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 bread.
1: Okay,
2: it's it's all God is raining down blessings. It's all godly blessings, but it's not to appear that way. So you have to allow God an alibi. So instead of it looking like He put money in your bank account, you have to go and have a job, and send your customers invoices and collect. Uh, payment from them, and uh, but that's really just plausible deniability, okay? Sure. Or if you need healing, God sends the healing, but you go through the motions, you go to the doctor, you listen to the doctor, you take the, the medicine, you do the therapy, whatever it is, okay? So the proper way of looking at it is like this. It's like having a cup. The blessings are raining down, and I want to catch the rain, so I hold out a cup. The cup does not create rain. The cup catches the rain. My efforts are like a cup. My efforts don't create blessing in my life. My efforts are a vessel that catches the blessings like that. before they enter my life. So they do to- two totally different things. It's, it's not a contradiction at all. That's interesting. The and, and I suppose,
1: right, if someone's in that space of recognizing that it's two totally different things, right? So I'm focused 100%. On the action and what I need to do, and then I'm not tied at all. I'm not emotionally tied to the outcome, to yeah. whether it's raining, right? If I'm, if I'm, I don't, for lack of a better word, obsessing over the cup itself, whether the rain comes or not, I feel um, less responsibility, less tied to it, and then there doesn't have to be as much anxiety surrounding it.
3: And you give yourself the best chance in that space to create the best outcome. Because you're not stumbling over your thoughts in that space, you allow yourself to open up.
1: Right, because oftentimes when we go there, then we don't do so. I like that. Of you're saying it's not a it's two totally different things. The cup and the rain. That's a good. Uh, that's that's a good analogy. Someone asked here um, about how to help their child who is nine years old deal with anxiety. I don't have any. I don't have a nine-year-old child.
3: I think that your child is always teaching you how to help them. I think that um, the hardest thing in the world is to get out of our own thought patterns. Um, But we must realize that our thought patterns are also based on our previous experiences, which may not be relevant to the needs of your child in this moment. So the greatest gift that we can give our children or anyone, including ourselves, is complete presence. And I don't know if there's a answer to specifically what's going on with this particular child but one thing we'll notice when someone has anxiety that the type of breathing that they're doing is upper chest breathing this is the emotional area and essentially when we're breathing in this area the breath is short and shallow and we're taking in less of the good stuff and we're holding on to more of the bad stuff and essentially we're just creating a cycle a negative pattern that constantly gets triggered by whatever the triggers are so one of the things that we can do with our children is we can sit and we can breathe with them. And it doesn't mean we have to sit around the table and say, okay, let's all hold hands and breathe. The cool thing about breathing is breathing is contagious. So when we slow down our breathing, we actually can shift the room. So when we can create a space of calm around our children, our children more often than not will be able to, to, to catch on. What we tend to do is we try to correct our children because it brings up stuff for ourselves. So if I see my child having a negative experience, it starts bringing things up for me. Maybe I'm not parenting well, or maybe this, or maybe something's wrong with my child. It's not where we want to go. Where we want to go is to a space of connecting with our children, and then we can direct our children. But we can't correct until we connect And then we can direct so first thing is to connect with the child and that means being completely present and you might want to start off by by mirroring them instead of you breathing and trying to get them to mirror you you mirror them and then you bring them over to where you are Um, can I share something about like morning routines so each morning I wake up and the first thing I do when I wake up is I smile, release dopamine, serotonin, and then I jump out of bed and I, I do my, my, my morning prayers and my breathing. And I do an inventory of myself to see where I'm holding, where I am, what my emotional state is, what my thoughts are. Like Something might have happened in my sleep that caused me to wake up a certain way. I might have smelled something or heard something as I was waking up that might have triggered something. So the first thing I do is I connect to where I am. So if I'm feeling anxiety, what, we most, what we're most taught to do is take a deep breath. But when you take a deep breath, when you have anxiety, basically what you're doing is you're going against your anxiety. You're not being one with it. We must become one. We must, we must connect before we direct. So if I'm feeling anxiety, what I do is I really accentuate the anxiety breath. And I see what begins to come up for me. What am I nervous about? Remember, it's only indicating what's important. So if I do that, I can connect to what's important. And I'm not trying to push it away and say, oh, God, I don't want anxiety today. Because if I'm trying to push it away and say, oh, God, I don't want anxiety today, you better believe you're going to have anxiety. But if you allow yourself to connect with it before you direct yourself, then what you do is you take your breath from (laughs) you got clear of what you want, why you want it, steps you can take to get it, and then you begin to walk your breathing pattern over to more confidence and certainty that you're creating that. So it goes from (laughs) to... And you're able to change your state. And just like you can do that with yourself, you can begin to do that with your. children. Chase, someone asked over here how a person changes their view of the world
1: from being a dangerous, unsafe place to being a safe place. Actually, I know that feeling well. I'd love to Mm -hmm. hear. uh, I know that journey well. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your.
2: I mean, there may be one way to do it. I can only talk to you about the way that. that I know about,
0: yeah, of course.
2: And that is um, studying the metaphysical, philosophical uh, ideas about the nature of reality that's found in Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, Hasidic teachings. It's heady stuff, you know. It's it's not it's not easy stuff. You understand the nature of reality. When you understand how not just you 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 you, you accept it as a as a and I and I, as a I don't know truth but you actually understand on a intellectual level, at least to the to the extent that we're capable of understanding such things, how, for instance, every single second mm-hmm. being created brand new. Or how everything in reality is an expression of godliness when you'll use those ideas and then here's the here's the important part meditate regularly on those ideas you can change factory default settings on a daily basis factory default settings are that the phenomenological universe that means the world that we know through our senses is the end all and the be all the everything right materialistic worldview that's factory default settings but when you study deep teachings of the real nature of of reality how how creation really works how it's an ongoing process how everything is is divinely orchestrated at every moment and you meditate and by meditate, I don't mean anything too fancy. I just mean to focus on the ideas, just like you do when you're worrying, when you when you have anxiety, perseverate on a thought. Same 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 basic concept. You're taking an idea and you're thinking about it with sufficient focus until you get an emotional reaction. Same thing here. You take it out the good books and you think about it, focus on it, Until you get an emotional reaction, except instead of an emotional reaction being one of anxiety, it's one of well-being. So uh, I, I highly recommend that everybody have a regular session of Torah study, specifically the mystic or spiritual teachings, as well as a regular session for meditating on those ideas. Preferably, if I can push my luck here, preferably both of those things um, should be in the morning or as early in your day as possible because, again, the point is to, uh, to supplant the factory default settings. So the earlier in the day you do it, the more of your day is going to be seen with, with the eyes that you want to see life with and the more of your life will then be experienced in that way
1: the uh when this was cool to hear uh, to rabbi talk about meditation i think we need more of those those things right and i don't mean meditation in the sense right meditation means like the way you say it is to actually think and meditate on an idea like to sit there with one idea versus i um i enjoyed the one meditation you put out there right tab i don't know if you put out more but i heard one and it's was more of filling the mm-hmm. mind than of emptying the mind. Uh, yes. Yeah. It, right. Filling the mind with an idea. And really, I mean, the same, it's like an obsession over, over worry. What I, what, what came to me when I, um, while you were talking and, and reading that question is uh, this workbook I worked on by Patrick Harnes. Patrick Harnes is the
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, father of sex addiction, quote unquote. He was the, the, I think the first person who spoke out and said, Hey, someone can be addicted to, um this process, the process of sex, whether it's pornography or whether it's other sexual behaviors. And he he became very known for that, then also wrote a number of books on the subject and treatment and ran treatment centers, et cetera. So he has one particularly work one particular workbook which kind of tricked me a little bit, but it was a good one. So he asks he gives you about I think it was twenty four adjectives and he says, choose the six that describe your parents and the ones that are most um in line with under the way they brought you up, what you believed, whether they were present and loving, whether they were punishing, whether they were um, aloof and distant, whatever, just 24 different adjectives, choose six. choose six. About 20 or 30 pages later, it doesn't let you know, but he asks you a different question, this time about God, and he says, choose six of 24 adjectives. And he may have put more, made it a little confusing, and he said, go back and compare the two. And they were spot on for me. It was my idea of God was pretty much what I was taught. And prior to that exercise, I had this aversion to the word God, to the word religion. Do I believe in God? Do I not believe in God? I didn't I didn't even want to give that subject thought. And after that exercise, I was like I have no choice but to give the subject thought because I'm living with a certain belief about it anyway. Right? Whether I believe it's a non existent God, that's that's my belief that there's no referee to this game. There's no rules to this game or I believe that there's a punishing God, or I believe there's a loving and caring God. Like there's a game being played and I have these set of beliefs and I'm not even willing to inspect it and look at it and see what I truly, truly believe. And that, that was a transformative moment for me that propelled me back into some of that work and said, what do I truly believe about the world? And realizing that a lot of those things were also implanted in me. They weren't ideas that I came to, they were the way my parents parented. And there were some I, I basically, like my, it was a hybrid of beliefs. It was a, like a mishmash that somewhat existence, existent, but doesn't really care about the small issues, uh, about the small issues, only the big issues. How do we know when something is big or small? Right? <laughs> you know, what's, the, what, what's the trigger that something goes from a big issue that God cares about to a small issue that he doesn't care about? It, it was a mishmash, but that forced me to inspect it. And upon inspection... I've found more and more what I've worked to is to find the the meaning. And I don't know if this is true or if you can, you can tell me if I'm implanting my own ideas on the Rebbe Chassidus or, or anything else, but on Chassidic philosophy. But um, one of my ideas of light, right? It says that our job as people is to create light in this world. So to me, light, what is light is clarity and darkness is confusion. So if I have a question of why this happened to me and why is this bad and why am I in this space, then that's darkness, that's confusion. And then my job is to bring light to that. So my my contention is that whatever anyone believes about it, they will prove out in their life. Whatever anyone believes about what happens to us. So, for example, I'll take the most obvious for me was child sex abuse. And I was determined to find the meaning and the experience in that. And one of the first letters I wrote where I publicly spoke about my story, I said that if I was given the choice, I would choose to be molested all over again and my mom reacted pretty harshly to this, like what do you mean you would choose to be molested all over again right That triggered I guess her own anxiety about being maybe a bad mother or something. Maybe I'll do a session one, one uh one day on anxiety, and I'll invite her to it and we can talk about uh <laughs> we, we can that but regardless, I always bring my mom into these, these these webinars in any case my my point is about um if I believed that it was random, that I was abused, and I never tried to infuse meaning into it, I think my life would have ended with, and someone from the outside would have looked at it with the same confusion. Why did this guy have to be abused? And I feel like my purpose is not only for myself to find my own light and clarity and meaning in it, that I can see it and say, okay, this is the reason why it happened. And there's not only one reason why, but it's it's clear to me, I don't have this burden that I carry of why did this happen to me? And I think that if other people looking at my life, I don't think that they'll ask the question, oh, why did God have him? Be- if there's a God in the world, why did he choose to have him abused? I think he appointed a good person for this, for, for this. I mean, you know, someone can disagree, but I think that, you know, I was chosen to bring light and clarity into this specific subject. And then if I believe that and I do it, then suddenly the world stops being, and going back to that answer, stops being a negative place. So my to sum up my answer in short is that I wasn't born believing that the world's a bad place. It's a belief that um, was implanted into me by either something that happened to me or parents which weren't perfect. I peek, no parents are perfect. So I, I've, I've, I've had this belief implanted in me and then I can go back and find those things That are creating this, that created this belief inside me that the world is a dangerous place, reframe those, find the positivity, draw it out, eliminate the darkness, infuse it with light, infuse it with clarity, infuse it with meaning. And now I've removed the thing that's there. So it's, it's a nothing. The idea that the world is a dangerous place is, is, is is not a belief. It's the absence of a belief. It's the absence of the truth. So I have to go back to those things, remove them, find the meaning. And then by itself, it's, so the light is there and it feels like a trusting and beautiful world once again. <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> Mike, did you want to uh, give
3: some? I just quick answer on that. Um, again, the mind is, there's something called neuroplasticity, which basically says that the mind is, is malleable and it's constantly growing in the direction we feed the thoughts. So we have these neurotransmitters. Right, that are constantly being triggered. So neurons that fire together wire together. And what that means is if you see the world a certain way, you're going to constantly believe what you see. So you're always going to be looking to substantiate that belief system. So how do you get to a space where you see the world as a safe space? Well, you have to train yourself. And the way you train yourself is you look above and you say, How often do I worry that my roof is going to uh, fall on me? I don't. So you start counting that. How often do I worry that the electricity is going to shock me? When I drive down the street, am I worried that I'm going to go and um, the bridge is going to collapse? We tend to keep score of the things we worry about, but we don't keep score of the things that are safe. And really, God and the universe are conspiring on our behalf. It's just that because we're in such a space of worry, based on the belief systems we've created throughout our lives, we tend to only see things that support those belief systems. So you have to challenge those belief systems, and you have to like actively challenge those belief systems, and diligently challenge those belief systems. And before you know it, you start keeping score of the right thing, and you can breathe again. You think a lot of that, Mike, is coming from focusing on...
1: Like an overfocus. I mean, I did that early in the webinar when I asked about the angels. I didn't realize I was doing it. How come the angels don't sing? And Robert Cobb called me on that right away and said, it does. And it's true. It does. It does in other ways, right? The feedback, the, the positive emotions. So you feel like it's keeping score. And what I was doing there was keeping score of the lessons that I've learned from pain and ignoring the lessons that I learned from positive feelings.
3: And if you were like, and this is just a framework, but if you were evaluating yourself on a scale of one through 10, 10 is your optimized self. Where is that thought coming from? Is that, is that a 10? Probably not. Where is it? And then the question is, well, how does a 10 think? How does a 10 perceive the world? And you begin to, I mean, it, it takes work. And I'll say this about you, Ali, Um in working with you for several, for many years, you are diligent about the work. I mean, you do, you know, and, and I know there's a saying, if you do the work, it works, right? It works if you work it. That's it thing. works if you work it. And a lot of people just create such a scarcity mindset, and if I don't believe it's going to work, I'm not going to have the energy to do the work. But if you open yourself up to it, and you actually begin moving forward with that faith and trust, you begin to realize for yourself that you just created a belief system over time, but it wasn't a truth. It was just a belief, and you begin to realize something much different.
1: Mike, one of one of my favorite things that I learned uh, from you was was rules. The rules that I have,
0: yeah.
1: And the the, brule, the rules are the BS rules, right? The BS rules. So I'm trying to remember one, but one was, um, I had a problem and not wanting to solve it in a certain way, right? You asked me like, you know, would you ever fly up to the guy and just you know confront him on the spot in front of his family? I was like, no, I would. I would never do that. He said, well, why not? And I was like, Oh, I, I don't know. Like, it just, like shook. And I had this rule that was forcing me into a double bind, right? That I just made up. I made up this rule right out of thin air that no, if the person's not answering my phone, then I'll never address it in this way because it's in a pro whatever it is. So it's a BS rule that I just had in my head. I didn't even realized I had it, but forcing me to challenge some of those BS rules. Rinpoche, so I read your book, um, Ami answers. Is that one?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I just sent uh, Volume Two to print, by the way. Oh, nice!
1: I'm looking forward. I I very much enjoyed it. I love the way you uh, um, dissect questions. You have to, (laughs) right? You do. So there's a question here. I asked the person to um, expand on it a little bit because I know that it's uh, it sometimes helps for the answer. But I, I think that, you know, there's anxieties come in so many different um, forms. And, you know, I was talking about my own, which is uh, around achievement, around money, around, you know, a lot of those things often. I mean, not only there's, oh, but predominantly in that. And for many um, women, I know that it, it comes in the form of parenting. And did you see that question that someone asked? Yeah, I did.
2: I did. And I thought about it. Yeah, I felt it. So uh,
1: some thoughts, some thoughts there. The question itself um, was about the anxiety someone gets when their children don't obey them. Yeah, I'm not finding the the exact words.
2: Maybe How can either. a mother help herself with her own anxiety that her false identity as a great mother is challenged when kids <laughs> in her disobey?
1: There you go. Okay, so
2: yeah,
1: I, so I I I know your ability to answer questions is legendary. I don't want to set you up too much because, but I I'd love to hear um, your take
2: on it. Well, I know it's a big it's one interesting a because. We're talking here for for ninety minutes. We said a lot of different stuff, and everybody hears something different. Um, everybody hears. I don't okay. know that people hear what they want to hear. I, I have a uh, my my belief is a little bit more hopeful than that. I think everybody hears what they need to hear. Mm-hmm. yeah, I okay. agree. Or at the very least, what they're ready to hear, meaning what's useful for them to yeah. hear. So it's interesting that what this um, mother heard was this one that we spoke about a hundred different things. Um, And what she heard was that idea of anxiety being related to that false identity being exposed as a false identity. And uh, she identified with that idea that resonated with her. And I don't know if it's something she was conscious of before, or she became aware of it during this webinar, but she's calling her self concept as a quote unquote great mother. Great mother, not just a good mother, great mother. That's a real, you know, that's a real uh, should to live up to, right? A great mother, not just, it's hard enough to be a mother, and then this good <laughs> mother, great mother, right?
3: That's right. A-
2: so. I mean, that's that. Those are some shoes to fill already. So I, I'm getting, I'm getting anxiety just reading that great mother. So she's got this false identity as a great mother, but of course, and and she probably has a. I mean, I'm just guessing. I just from the way it's written that she didn't make that up completely from whole cloth, like I. She's a really, really poor mother and then identifies as a great mother. (laughs) She probably has an – she actually has a reputation and to some extent a well-earned reputation as a great mother. (laughs) And maybe even she's someone other mothers come to for advice. That's the worst thing. By the way, what's the most shameful thing is when people come to you for advice, stuff that you're not even doing right for yourself. I got over that a long time ago, by the way. But, <laughs> um, but <laughs> so she, she's supposed to be this great mother, and that's her her identity. By the way, I, I'm, I'm just rambling here. I'm think, thinking out loud. Most false identities you know, at a young age. That's just my – I don't know any studies. I don't actually – I don't read any books. I mean, I learned – torah but i don't I'm, I'm woefully ignorant i have no idea if this is what people say if their son is just this is what i see that that most identities are made up when we're very very young so and 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 there are women it's interesting not so often do you find man who grew up as a little father you know he identified as a father very very rarely in fact, very often you find the guy who actually is married and has children, and he's still working and identifying as a father. <laughs> but <laughs> but you have women who, you know, they, they identified as a mom. You know, look, I'm making up a lot of stuff about this question. Maybe she had to mother her siblings. Maybe, I mean, someone who has a deep identity as a great mother, you know, uh, this is probably someone who has a fairly established track record as being the responsible one and the you know the, the organized one and okay, but then here's the thing. there's the um, there's the being exposed as a fraud every single time her kids don't listen or obey. And and that's rough because little kids, they miss. You know, you tell them please. Don't understand. Listen to me. I'm known as a great mother. Okay, you don't <laughs> understand that. Not a good mother. A great mother. Okay, and I have situations. Now I'm telling you to go to bed. You're not going to bed. Okay. So you're exposing me, at least to myself as not only not a great mother, but a very poor mother, do me a favor, please. Could you just support, you know, could you help me to at least hold on to this reputation, to this identity? They won't do it for you. Okay. So what's happening here? What's happening here is you're fighting with your kid, your power struggling with your kid, because they have something that you need. They have your identity. And they're not letting you have it. Now that's a deep thing. An identity. We've talked about it before, like a right to exist. So somebody's holding on to my right to exist. And all types of people do this in all types of different ways. You know, some people get their identity validated because other people will do business with that, right? Other people have their identity valid because other people find them physically attractive and want to be in you know a relationship with them. Different people have different things that that's what that's how they get their identity affirmed. in this particular case, I'm not saying she doesn't have other ways. she also gets her identity affirmed and other identities, but at least in this case, she's got an identity called, rape and her kids are holding on to it. And basically holding her hostage with that because they won't let her have it. So she's chasing them to get herself back from them. That's one of the worst places to be in, whether it's with your, I mean, with anyone, but especially with your kids. Because when somebody's holding on to my entire sense of who I am, that, you know, kind of leverage that is. It's not a fight. I will compromise all of my principles, my values, and my morals in order to get myself back from somebody. I'll let them destroy me. I mean, the the term we often use for is codependent. So here is, you know, a little bit of codependence on your your own children. Mm -hmm. So how do I get out of this? I mean, this is like such a terrible situation. How do I get out of it? And before I talk about getting out of it, I just want uh, to <laughs> highlight one more thing that makes it so insidious. Parents are meant to give to their children. There should only be one direction. The energy should only flow one way in a parent relationship. You should never take from your child. Security, approval, validation, that's awful. Never take from your child support, you know, parents who use their kids for emotional support and all that kind of stuff. This is pretty severe. This is like, hey, I have a reputation as a great mom and you're running away with it. Get the hell over here with my reputation as a great mom. You have my identity, you know, get over here, right? So that's real enmeshment. So what am I supposed to do when somebody has my sense of self and they're running away with it or they're holding it hostage or they don't even know they have it, you know, and therefore I'm completely at their mercy? What should I do? because I'm willing to do anything. I'll, I'll die. Of, of course I'll die because if I don't have me, then I might as well not be alive, right? So I will actually, if, you know, in the hardcore version of this game, I'll go to my grave trying to get somebody to be who I'm supposed to be. So how, how do you get out of this? So how do you? I don't know. We should have another webinar. No, okay. It goes um,
3: back to Bruce.
2: There you go. So in this case, what would be the brule?
3: I'm a great mother if, and then the list is like 10,000 feet long. And then you look at that and say, I'll never live up to that. You have to recognize what the brules are.
1: Um, my, I, 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 I was working out with you and you asked me in order to feel fit.
0: I always what what I I need, I remember. Right. Yep. right
1: the fitness. like what, what would I need to feel fit? And I gave something like. I don't know bench pressing two times my body weight and everything. It's like of course not enjoying working out. Like your your rule to feel fit is 150 push-ups, benching twice your body weight, running a 5k right. under six minutes. I mean those are your, right. could your could it be in order to feel fit you work out four
2: times a week? Could that be something? Yeah, but Ellie, sustainable? But Ellie at least those are things that you could actually set as goals for yourself. It's the same thing That's, so I, I think Well we no, because this is no but this is this is so much this is impossible at least you want to say I want to bench twice my body weight okay maybe it's not maybe it's not maybe it's not likely but at least it's it's something that you can work toward. You don't need right. somebody else to give you permission yes. for it. This exactly. is something but, you can never get from yourself. You're dependent
3: upon someone else. It's outside else of your control. It's right, outside of your control. I think what
1: Mike is saying is is exactly that, right? So if the rule is that in order to feel like a great mother, I need my kids to listen to me, that's a pretty tall order. But if it, um, in order to feel like a great mother, I need there to be dinner on the table and I need to see them off to school, and I need them to survive the day, then my son turned two the other day. I was like, "That's," I feel like a great dad. He survived to two. Like the first six months, eight months of his life, I was checking his breathing six times a night. So I'm a great father just because he's alive, right? So that's a pretty good rule. That's a, that's much different than a, he's got to listen to me every time I talk. That's a rule. Hey, maybe it's, it shouldn't be so easy, right? Maybe it should be No, it should. It should, it should,
3: actually. It, like, I, I went many years of my life thinking I was sick, like really, really sick. And I sat there, and I learned I'm only healthy when – and I had this whole list, and it was like 20 things. I'm healthy when I feel good all the time, when I get eight hours of sleep, when people like me, when I have a six-pack, when I don't have coughs. When, I mean, it's like – like half of the shit was not. Excuse me. Half of the stuff was outside of my control. So how often did I feel healthy? Never. So you want to make it easy. I get to feel healthy every time I take a deep breath. I get to feel healthy every time I drink a glass of water. I get to feel like a great mom every time I smile at my child. So you don't make this like some like slope that you'll never feel adequate towards. Like you're comparing yourself to perfect. And, and what's the saying? Perfect perfection is something. The enemy of the possible is something. Yeah. I'll make perfect the enemy of the possible. That's it. You know, so the, we have to recognize what the rules are. So I'd recommend you write a list and say, I am a great mom when, and then you look at that stuff and you say, how many of these things are even within my control? I'm totally setting myself up for failure here. And then make a different so, list.
2: to plug it into that exact scenario, when I react such and such a way to my children not listening to me. In other words, they're not going to listen to you. Now, how are you going to react to it? Because that's the only thing that you have to evaluate, your reaction good, to good it. response. Now, there's more to be said about it, because I, there is in the long term an objective of helping the children to become um, to helping them to listen and to helping them to be more aligned with your values. But that, that, that's, that's a second discussion. The first discussion is, and the truth, it,
1: just that doesn't so, have to be I tied to the identity of it. The, identity well, well,
2: of the, person. The, the truth is, so it doesn't sound like I'm contradicting and I'm playing both sides. Let me just explain something to you. The way ultimately helping to help teach our children how to manage their behaviors better is actually not by um, getting them to do anything. It's by getting ourselves to do different things. It's not about getting our kids to be certain kinds of kids. It's about getting our, getting ourselves to be certain kinds of parents. So the whole thing is only about what you're gonna tell yourself. about target behaviors for yourself. It's not target behaviors for the kid, target behaviors for yourself as a parent. It's like boundaries in a relationship. I mean, it's a little bit off topic, but it's the same kind. People say, "Well, I set boundaries." Well, what was the boundary? I told him you're not allowed to, to 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 go, you know, to to go out all night. Well, that's not a boundary. A boundary is not what you tell someone else they can or cannot do. A boundary is on yourself what you're going to do. Like if you go all go go out all night, I'm going to sleep. I'm <laughs> not waiting <laughs> up, right? Right. That's a boundary.
1: Uh, what we should end with, and Chase, I don't know if you want to. Question. This I know, Mike for sure will, will be something, um, something to give you know practically when this comes up. But one of the things I, I enjoyed, Chase, even though you could have been totally off base about what happened with that woman, like the great, and focusing on the great, and whether it was all
2: correct, you could completely off.
1: Right, could have been completely off. But I, I enjoyed it in any case because what I've found for myself is that that's what work looks like right? Like the personal work, when someone says, I'm, I'm working on myself, what am I doing is I'm trying to dig, I'm trying to find and I have to name it in the simplest, easiest format possible just to get down to the root of it. Instead of saying I'm afraid of uh, getting sick, or I'm afraid of getting into an accident, or I'm afraid of this business deal going bad, right? I'm afraid of looking myself in the mirror, and not feeling rich, and then going there. What does rich mean? What is my definition of rich? How much has to be there? And then really like fleshing it out and fleshing it out and fleshing it out and fleshing it out. And in that to really um, inspect, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you've come across the work of uh, Scott Peck, The Road Less Traveled, and his number of other books, he talks about continuously inspecting our maps of the world, right? And that takes, you know, we can't look at a map of the world like a globe. we got to look at street by street. What is this map? What is that map? Where does this intersect? What's this street name? Recently, there were big news na- ma- made from the, from the, the name of a street. The name of a street could be a big, could, could be a pretty big deal. And to get down on that level and really inspect the map. So as you sussed it out, whether you were right or wrong, that's the, the process that I found. When I can get down and hold it up and look at it in the three dimensional and saying, what's scaring me is not that this business deal goes well. It's not that I'm going to be homeless. It's not the real, like for, it's that, I've, I've so identified with this as a part of my personality that I'm afraid of losing myself. And then the work is not doubling down on that. The work is saying, okay, who am I without that identity? Like if everything disappeared, who would I be? And the more I can own a part of my personality and my identity that, uh, isn't so tied to that, the freer I'll be. You know, I don't know if you've um, heard this. I don't know the source for it, but it was a, a speech that I heard Jesse Jacobson give. It was leading up to Yom Kippur. And he said, it's kind of um, a bizarre prayer, the call Nidre, right? We come to this climax of the year, right? Like here it is, the holiest day of the year. Everyone comes to the synagogue and the uh, the prayer that said, everyone knows it, right? Everyone has gone to Tanah Yom Kippur, the Kol Nidre prayer. And if you translate into Hebrew. It's kind of like, all my oaths are not oaths. All my vows are not vows. All my promises are not promises. It's like, okay, like, this is it. This is like our day of transformation. And the way he explained it, and I don't know the source for it, but the way he explained it is that it's not referring to the promise that you made to someone, you know, and stole my floors and I'll pay you $2,200. It's refer that those vows aren't vows. It's the vows that I made to myself. I am a great mother. I'm a successful business guy. I'm am an amazing coach. I am a scholar. I am fit. Right, And all of those promises that we make to ourselves, if we want to transform as human beings, then we need to release ourselves. Like all of those promises, I have a brand new identity. I'm being created anew. And who am I today? And all of those identities that I've projected for the past year don't have to come with me to the next year if I want to have a transformative experience on Kipper. I don't know if you know the source for it, but it it was moving when I heard the, the, uh, the thought. Mike, it seems like people, do you know the source for that? If there's a source, maybe the source is Jesse Jacobson, and that can be good enough for us.
2: Should we leave it at that? It's an old thing that rabbis say. I don't know where it comes from. Rabbis say it.
1: The rabbis say it. Okay. So I found the rabbi. Someone can blame it on, uh, on him. The, the idea was good, though. The idea about letting go of our, our identities. Um, someone asked the question what about anxieties that are based in reality? For example, we could become pitifully poor. I mean, the argument that I was making is sure all of those things can happen, but when it turns into an anxiety that consumes us, What I found for myself is that we're identifying very strongly with that. So yes, everything can happen, but I'm much more, I I can also end up sick. I rarely have, and Mike, you spoke about that anxiety around health. I rarely have anxiety issues related to health. I do have a lot of anxiety issues related to achievement and success and financial things, right? So I'm identifying much stronger with one than with another. It's not that they, both of them could happen. It's more about my identity that's causing the anxiety than the actual probability of each one happening. But when coronavirus happened, I, I thought much less about what if I contract coronavirus and I get sick. I thought much more about what, what happens to my business. That was much like my, my, my thoughts were much more in line
2: with that. Right. And it's not it's like I, your friend if I get into a car, a car accident, I may have to do paperwork. Exactly. So you are, if I get Corona, you know, my, my, my who's going to run my business while I'm
1: sick. Exactly. More, right. More along those lines. So it's not, I, I didn't right. sit there and weigh out the probabilities of I'm this age and this demographic, and this is my weight. And I'm on the, you know, the scale in this direction. And it only has a 0.01% chance. But being that I'm in this state and my business is kind of essential, but not totally essential. I didn't weigh it all out. I just got
2: spooked. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. The thing that you're scared of, the thing that, You know, there are people who can be scared of being sick. You weren't scared of being sick. You were scared being sick would cause you financial loss. Like your friend wasn't scared of getting into a car accident. Afraid A car accident would force him to make, to fill out paperwork. Exactly.
1: And that's, that's why I think anxieties are so important to really go through it. Instead of saying, I'm afraid of this, like, okay. And then what's going to happen? And then what's going to happen? Like I write out. Uh, there's a uh, tim Ferriss has a ted talk about this where he says don't write down your goals write down your fears and spell it, spell it out like totally clearly what's the fear don't tell me the fear is i'm gonna get into a car accident because it's not the true fear the true fear is i have to fill out paperwork the next day and then when i see that and it's okay right. someone is associated and filling
2: out paperwork isn't even the real fear it's being exposed as incompetent exactly
1: right and then there are two things on the one hand you say okay competence is important to me like mike said earlier and then certain steps to be taken and then another can be the identity work that's okay what if i am actually not competent in a certain area do i still deserve to exist on this planet right it's not money is important to me and i think it'll always be important to me but i'd like to believe that some of the work that i did that if i wasn't there i would still go to sleep at night feeling like i exist. Uh, like I did like I, I exist I deserve to exist maybe that was a good Freudian slip actually not that I deserve to exist that I exist Mike maybe let's t- take us out with a um, um, an exercise something practical someone can do they're in a state of heightened anxiety um, what what could someone do to do it you gave a little bit of an exercise before Yeah, so I want to share
3: what I do. So I work a lot with um, professional fighters, boxers, different professional athletes. But in this case, um, I want to tell something specific to boxing. And first of all, anxiety is normal. It's a part of life. The question is, is it debilitating your life? In which case it becomes something that you really have to address. But let's just say that people get nervous when something is important. What I have my fighters do is I have them warm up before a fight. So for 15, 20 minutes, they're getting their muscles warm. And then what we do is we bring their heart rate down to around 99 beats per minute, which is about can be achieved if you're at like 140 through a warm-up, can be achieved through about three minutes of specific type of breathing, which I'll take us through in a moment. The reason I do that is because when they walk down the aisle, they're going to slowly begin getting their heart rate up again but not as much as their opponent. When their opponent leaves the dressing room, their heart rate's already at 145. By the time they hit the ring ready to fight, they're at like 150, 155. By the time the fourth round comes around, they're at like 160, 165. What happens when your heartbeat is that fast, and just equate this to anxiety, when your heartbeat is that fast, you're, able, you're not able to take in as much oxygen. So your breathing becomes short and shallow. You're running out of breath. And when your breathing is short and shallow you're not your response time is not good you're not thinking clearly and you're you're suffering so by the time my athlete hits the ring they're at 99 by the time their opponents at 140 we're at 115 when their opponents are 160 we're at 125 why am i saying this because it's the pre-work that you do ahead of your day that's going to determine your day so if you have a big meeting you can rest assured if it's important to you, your heart's going to beat fast. All of ours does. It's normal physiology. When something's important, we get excited. And by the way, you can look at anxiety or worry as the opposite emotion to anxiety, or to excitement. You worry about something because it's important or the opposite of it is important. So what we want to do, and here's the exercise, is we want to realize that there's three Levels to the lungs. You have the upper level, center, and the bottom. When we're experiencing anxiety, our breathing is short and shallow. We're only breathing up here. So what we want to do is A, we want to recognize whether or not we're breathing correctly. Most people don't even know how to breathe. So everyone take a deep breath in. And notice when you take a deep breath in, are your shoulders going up? Is your stomach coming in? If so, you're breathing wrong. The way we're intended to breathe is when we inhale, our belly should come out. Why should our belly come out? Because we're filling it up with air, like a balloon. And if you look at any baby, you'll notice when they breathe, their belly goes up when they inhale and comes down when they exhale. And throughout their lives, they things happen, and they become stressed and their body goes into fight or flight and it alters the breathing and we develop these patterns so step one put your hand on your belly and inhale and allow your belly to come up it might be difficult in the beginning because you're training yourself retraining yourself and then what you want to do as you're inhaling not only feel your belly come up which should be the first step feel your ribcage expand <coughs> So first it's the belly, then the rib cage, and then the chest. So it's almost like if you had a zipper and you were zipping up, imagine as you're zipping up, every part of your body is expanding on the inhale. So we inhale to the count of five, feeling ourself expanding. And then we hold the breath to the count of three. The reason you hold the breath is because when you hold the breath, it produces a little bit of carbon dioxide in the body, which actually serves as a bronchiolator. It expands your bronchial tubes. And that's good because you want the air to come in and out effortlessly. And then when you exhale, you want to exhale longer than you inhale. Think of the cup Rabbi Talb was showing us. If that cup was full all the way, it wouldn't be able to capture any rain. If our lungs are full all the way, we're not able to capture the oxygen. So we wanna really focus on emptying everything out. Here's how it looks. We're gonna inhale for five, hold for three, exhale for seven. We just do that for one minute. Close your eyes as you do it, only if you're safe and you're not driving, obviously. And gently, not forcefully, Allow yourself to inhale and feel your belly, your ribcage, and your upper chest expanding outward, filling up with oxygen. Hold one, two, three. Exhale, just relax. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Slowly sip in to the count of five. Count on your own. and hold, and here's the important part. As you exhale, feel your face relaxing, your shoulders relaxing, your neck relaxing, and your belly relaxing. You're letting go, letting go and letting God, trusting, not forcing or trying to control. And just do this on your own for another 30 seconds. You'll also notice when you have anxiety, your right nostril will be more open than your left. When you're overly tired, your left nostril will be open more than your right. It's the body's natural balancing. The right side is more of an aggressive energy and the left side is more of a receiving, a passive energy. Every hour and a half it switches on a healthy body, But over our life, we develop these things like anxiety or depression. And essentially, we can we can notice the way we're breathing. Because think of it this way. Whatever your psychological or emotional state is, your breathing is going to mirror it. When you're happy, you'll breathe a certain way. And when you're sad, you'll breathe another way. And just as your psychological and emotional state affect the way you breathe, you can shift your psychological and emotional state through the way you breathe. So you want to be able to create a full deep breath, starting with your belly, solar plexus, chest. If you notice your right nostril is open more than your left, you want to clean out your left nostril and begin. And you can do that also by laying on your right ear, which will open the left side up. And you want to restore balance and homeostasis. All this is really doable. The key is you want to create healthy habits. And there's something called the health the habit loop. In the habit loop is you need something to trigger a behavior. And the way it happens, you have to set up a trigger that's going to elicit in a, like a, a positive emotional response. So my alarm comes off and I become excited because I'm going to take action. So trigger, emotional response, actions, reward. And if you can create a healthy habit loop around moving through your anxiety, you'll get through it quickly. But if you see your anxiety as a plague and something that's gonna take hell and high water to get through, you're just reinforcing the anxiety and you're gonna be stuck with it. There's hope, have it, and move forward.
1: Thanks Mike, appreciate that. The impromptu uh, um, small breathing session. So uh, Mike and I have done sessions like this for 45 minutes, an hour at times, just just straight breathing. Some of them very intense. Some of them can uh, make you a little bit high. And feel like you've had a few drinks. Um,
3: a breath is not a breath is not a breath. There's different breaths for different emotional states and to regulate the body. So you can play with it yourself. What's the breath of happiness? What's the breath of sadness? And just begin to to explore your breathing, um, and, and you'll feel you'll feel shifts in your body as you do it. Shay, some last thoughts before we uh, say good night.
1: No, this is great. We should do this every night. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm grateful that this is a topic that I can talk about today. Anxiety is something that I, like I said at the beginning of this, I didn't know I had, uh, because it was standard. I just thought that that was life. I thought everyone was just as nervous about things as I was. You know, one way I've said it is, you know, when you're walking around your whole life with a weight until you take it off, you have no idea how much you're carrying. And that was certainly one of the weights was just a constant state um of anxiety and then i'm also grateful that i had the opportunity to um work with mike and you know spend some of those time spend a lot of time working through. So i was showing mike that the first time i met him um he gave me uh he gave me this and i still i still uh i still use it i write in it I have some notes and change out the pad obviously inside but this uh this little book and I'm grateful for the, uh, the, the time we work together and it's specifically on this topic, because I really feel that one of my um, proudest accomplishments, when we talk about identity, that one of my proudest accomplishments is that I no longer live with constant anxiety and I don't medicate it um, through any specific way. And maybe that ties well, dovetails well with um, identity and the way we we've, we've linked this, linked identity and anxiety is that for a while my identity was tied to things that are out of our control stuff like how much money is in the bank stuff like how big the business is stuff like how my relationships are doing am i in a relationship Am I, you know those things and uh, this is not that those things aren't important to me anymore but that today there are a number of other things that are part of my identity and one of those disappearing. Won't bring me back to that place of me feeling like I don't have a right to exist. So thanks everyone for uh, tuning in, hanging out with us. And um, Rabbi Taub can be connected at uh, can you can he's got a lot of content he puts out there. Soulwords.org, the YouTube channel. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I hang out on there. I've watched a lot of his work. He's On his website, he has a lot of um, a lot of good stuff. A number of books. I think you said you're working and hopefully quarantine has given you some time to, to write a lot of books,
3: not tra- not traveling the world. If I can just say one thing, I remember, um, I need to say this. Um, I remember when we first began working together and we went through a, an exercise, it was an identity exercise. And I asked you to, to think of three people who you admire and um, what are some characteristics of those people that you admire. And essentially you do this exercise because What you admire in others represents who you are. In other words, if you admire integrity or if you admire hard work, it's because those things are important to you. So they're a reflection of who you are. And I remember when you gave your answers and I sat there and listened, I just remember really being blown away. And I remember feeling like a lot of emotion and I don't know. I was living in North Carolina at the time. So we were, the first session was actually a, a, we met in person, but we also, our first session was a video call. Do you remember? I was tearing. Like I got very emotional as, as you answered that because you just have something about you that I knew that first conversation that you're going to really impact the world in a, in a really beautiful way. And I think we're, what, four years later now? Um, three and a half, four years later and, I'm amazed by you. I'm amazed by what you're doing. Um, I'm amazing how you're impacting lives, not only your own, but your family and all these people that have showed up. And I just want to just bow and just say, I'm grateful to to be in your life. And I just think the world is a better place because of you. So thank you for all that you do.
1: I appreciate that. And you're a big part of that. Thank you.
3: There you have it, my
0: conversation with Coach Mike Rosenfeld and Rabbi Shay Taub. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you benefited from it. I sure did. Every time I talk about anxiety, it's a way of facing anxiety, looking it straight in the eye, learning from it, not running from it, engaging with it, and being a student of it. See you soon. We got much more from you on the In Search of More podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great day.